This podcast is proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Tampa Tantrum, episode the 89th. 89. Um, 89. Uh, this week, as you can tell from the voice in the background, that's Hi. not Colin. No. Uh, Colin's in Sydney, isn't he? Is he? He's in the Australia. Um, yeah, he's somewhere in Australia. I'm not sure where exactly in Australia he'll be by the time this airs, but um, he's on the other Where's side of the world. Kind of? Yeah, yeah, he's in a different place. So Jenna's Jenna's very kindly filled the Colin breach, uh, and just like <laughs> last time, it's always better to have other people than Colin. I think we should maybe get rid of him. Oh, I'm, let's I'm, go to I'm San Francisco without him anyway. <laughs> so yes, General Glow is joining. Who is the uh, the one who does all the work behind Tampa Tantrum? Um, how's it going? Uh, it's it's going well. So at the time of recording, we are um, we are getting ready to leave for San Francisco. Um, by the time this airs, San Francisco will have happened. So uh, and it will have been amazing. Yes. Uh, I'm super yeah. excited about it, um, but it is, it, it has all been go, 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 um, and I'm really looking forward to this one, and um, I, I can tell you right now, there are going to be some really great conversations that um, will start there, and I'm super excited about it, so I can't wait for everyone to get to see it as well, uh, for those for those who could not make it in person, yeah. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. So we're joined by um, a, a special guest this week, who's going to be one of the speakers at San Fran um, in... Uh, uh, Hannah, I'm going to ruin your name. I'm going to ruin your name if that's okay, because I'm the worst at pronunciation. But Hannah Nushwanda, you did fine. <laughs> you did great. <laughs> I, just, I don't know why they let me do the MC at the WBC because I have the worst pronunciation of surnames ever. Uh, I am terrible at it. But uh, Hannah, obviously, previous speaker um, on uh, previous podcast uh, contributor, um, and now speaking at San Fran in a few days, and also. Um, back on again so are you excited about San Fran and what coming up to to speak to us I'm so excited I've never been to a live tamper tantrum so I'm yeah I'm very excited well we did invite you once didn't we but then they there was some travel thing you couldn't come I seem yeah. to remember. was that yeah that's exactly yeah. what happened so I'm yeah so this will be my um this this will be my first time <laughs> and I'm I am very excited and I love San Francisco well, so I've never been to San Francisco, so that's the one thing that's exciting me is oh just like going a new city. Oh wow, um, yeah, it's a great city. And the more I travel, the less new cities they are. <laughs> you, have you been before, haven't you, Jen? Because you lived not far from there for a while. Yeah, I I lived um, down in Sunnyvale, down in sort of the South Bay, uh, Silicon Valley area, and I would occasionally make it up to the city, but not very frequently uh, because I was a workaholic. Um, but <laughs> I enjoyed the time I spent there. I, I thought it was a lovely place and lots of lots of tasty coffee and nice things. So to do. much tasty coffee. Yeah, like incredible coffee scene. So. But that's not always been the case there, has it? Because I kind of remember the time when Ritual were like the only guys in town and then there was an awful lot of like kind of darker roaster, kind of like traditional, like better coffee than the majority of cities, but like a, a, a very unique San Fran style. Or am I getting that wrong? Well, depending on how you want to how you want to split your hairs, you, you really could talk about the birth of specialty coffee being in San Francisco because that is where mm. Alfred Pete started roasting coffee uh, in the 60s and sourcing single origin coffees back in the 60s and 70s, um, although you wouldn't have called them that at the time. Um, and he's the one who taught 
the Starbucks guys how to roast. And I know a lot of people probably uh, would take issue with calling Starbucks and Pete's specialty coffee, but really compared to what was, you know, in the kind of mass market coffee scene at the time, what they were doing was very different and clearly marked, you know, a shift Mm -hmm. in the industry. So there you go. Wow. San Francisco, workplace uh, uh, of specialty coffee. I'm putting my flag in the ground. <laughs> people can <laughs> light up the comments board to disagree with me. But I think that's kind of like a lot of places where, you know, coffee kind of really becomes the epicenter in a, in a culture. It kind of starts it and then everybody else takes it on somewhere else. But mm-hmm. because it's so traditional that it doesn't really, it didn't really move on for a long time. But that, that's, that's my feeling. And now it feels like it really is moving forward and, you know, kind of, blue bottle sprout in there and kind of becoming the 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 huge machine that it is and um you know at one point in time i was keeping track of coffee roasters on the west coast because i i a couple years ago wrote a book about Mm -hmm. coffee roasters on the west coast and so i was kind of trying to keep track of who they were and how many they were for about a year after the book was published and in San Francisco, so I, I did all the research for the book around 2011, 2012, um, and there was this huge surge of micro-roasting starting right around that time in the city, and I got to like 150, and I had to give up because Yikes. I could not keep track of them anymore. <laughs> it was too crazy. Um, so yeah, it's yeah. it has got a serious uh, scene in that wow. Jen, have you ever written a book, Jen? I have not, um, Stephen. I, I do not intend to. I'm just going to throw that out there because it seems like everybody <laughs> and their brother is writing books these days. <laughs> what, just because I've written a book, then that means everybody and their brother do. Is that what you're trying to say, Jen? No, no, it wasn't, wasn't you, Stephen. I was directing that out. I was directing it at other people. <laughs> it's kind of true. When Colin can write a book, anybody can. <laughs> Sorry, it's yeah. a little bit um, overrated. <laughs> yeah, I always have to. I have to have this little dig at Colin every possible opportunity that I can, and, and mainly because when he's on with me, I can't get a word in edgeways to say anything. So it's always nice to just have a little dig at him when he's not here. Um, so you kind of like give us a little bit of the background because I know people, stupid people, may have missed your initial podcast. So kind of what's your involvement in coffee, like kind of first experiences and things, and then you know kind of going forward to the work you're doing today? Yeah, so I probably, like, you know, almost everybody um, came into coffee through being a barista. So uh, I live in Portland. We moved here in 2006, and I didn't know anybody. And I was working as a freelance writer and editor, which meant I spent almost all my time in my sweatpants by myself, which was a very (laughs) sad way to spend time. I thought I needed to get out a little. um, And got myself a job at at a great local cafe called Extracto. And um, this was, you know, really right at the time when the quote unquote sort of third wave coffee scene was really starting to blossom in Portland. Um, And so I just, I, it it was energetic and interesting. And I started learning a little bit about it simultaneously started working at the local alt weekly called Willamette Week. Um, So I started writing about coffee for them because I knew, you know, a teeny tiny bit. Um, And things sort of went from there. I I started um, writing more about coffee for some of the kind of trade mag rags, (laughs) Barista (laughs) Magazine and Roast and all of those, Um, uh, and as well as um, consumer magazines like Portland Monthly and 
travel and leisure and some other stuff. And then um, I just very, very luckily was kind of in the right place at the right time and was um, approached to write this book, this guidebook to coffee roasters on the West Coast, um, which gave me really tremendous opportunity to get to talk to a lot of people. When you're when you're writing a book or, or an article for a magazine, people tend to answer the phone and answer your questions. Um, so I had the opportunity to interview like 50, 60 uh, coffee roasters um, at, a, at a very exciting time in coffee and try to understand, you know, what it is that they were doing, why they were so, you know, why there seemed to be this energy behind coffee um, emerging at that point in time in the U.S., especially on the West Coast, um, and then trying to kind of take that all and explain it in a way that, like, my mom could understand, um, which it turns out is not actually that easy to do. <laughs> so, um, like any specialized thing, it has its own language and its own kind of ethos and translating that for people is, um, can be challenging. So, but it was a really fun, exciting challenge. And as I, um, yeah. as I sort I mean, of follow- going on from that, Hannah, why, why do you think that like, cause uh, the West coast, and I agree with you a, a thousand percent that like the West coast seemed to be on fire yeah. and the East coast seemed to be smoldering. Why yeah. do you think that there was that? I mean, I, I like, I may spoil the book here, but um, why do you think that that West Coast uh, scene was so big at the time? Yeah, well, it's not a mystery, so it won't spoil the book. Um, <laughs> it's just a guidebook. Um, but, yeah, I think part of it is has to do with the kind of larger food scene and kind of um, conversation that was happening around food and and drinks, you know, included in that. So cocktails and beer and all that kind of stuff. There was just an energy around um, food and food production and the conversations that people were wanting to have about, um, you know, where it comes from and what the stories are behind it that was especially uh, invigorating and invigorated on the West Coast. And part of it, I think, is because you are closer to agriculture in many places on the West Coast. That's not a, you know, blanket statement true for everything mm -hmm. but um you know here in portland we are just literally you know about 20 minutes or 15 15 minutes to a half an hour from some serious farmland outside the city and that gives chefs access to um a lot of really amazing produce and also the stories that go with that and i think there was um you know i think everybody who was interested in flavor no matter what the sort of product was was kind of having this I this moment where they were like, oh my gosh, we can do some really amazing things here and we have some incredible stories to tell. And I think for coffee, that's really where a lot of that energy um, focused on the story aspect of it. Like we, we can we can know where this coffee came from. It's not just sort of bulked into a giant container mixed together with everything else. We can keep it separate and we can talk about um, the farm and the farmer and um, their family and um, the particular interesting things that they're doing to make their coffee unique and different. And, you know, we can bring that to you, yeah. customer. Um, so I think, I think that's a big part of what was happening. But why do you think that? Because I think of like New York as like... Some of the best food I've eaten has been in New York, uh, admittedly in very expensive places. Yeah. Um, you know, you think about kind of going down, you've got the, uh, I'm trying to think just below there, you've got like really good beer scene going on, but coffee just seemed to not happen so much. And 
Yeah, I've never thought about it until you mentioned this. So. Yeah, I mean, maybe part of it, I'm just grasping here, but <laughs> maybe <laughs> part of it is that I think, you know, the West Coast is more of a laid back place. And I think people are just willing to like go take 20 minutes out of their day and like sit and enjoy a cup of coffee. And it wasn't just seen as a caffeine delivery system. I mean, I think the culture around that has shifted, but the East coast is like a much more go, go kind of place, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think people's relationship with coffee was a little bit more, um, uh, transactional, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Until it wasn't, until it wasn't. Um, yeah. So, but I think maybe the West coast had a higher, uh, tolerance for like enjoying, (laughs) something you know taking that minute I, maybe i guess also there's going to be a real estate issue in there as well in some yes. of those some of those you know cities along the uh, the east coast it's kind of like very expensive real estate yeah. so it has to be transactional and kind of yeah. like whereas when you get somebody where like portland which i'm sure is equally is you know, not quite as expensive you've got a little bit more play time to kind totally. of go oh this is what we're doing and and you know people being more open to things and not just wanting that transaction I think you're completely right about that. And now, I mean, now so many cities on the West Coast that are that have great coffee scenes have gotten so so expensive. You really are, um, and this is this is true across the country. Though cities in general uh, have gotten so expensive, you're starting to see that culture migrate out into you know what I would call like second or third cities, like Spokane. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I grew up in Spokane. You may never have heard of it but <laughs> it's a reasonably sized city in eastern washington the second largest city after seattle um and you know five years ago they had literally nothing but you know chain coffee shops and now they've got a handful of pretty great cafes including a couple of their own micro roasteries and it's because places like portland were you know saturated and mm-hmm. and too expensive and so you know young creative passionate people who have the flexibility to to start their life somewhere new um move to spokane to do that i think that's awesome that's great yeah no no for sure so you so you go from writing the book how do you go from there to working with with, world you know for world coffee research and and the work that you're doing now so yeah so okay so writing for me kind of like teaching is it's just a way to learn about something that I'm interested in, right? Um, in order to write about it, just like, just like teaching about it, you have to understand it. I'll, you, for what's the way that I, the math that I like to do around this is, you know, whatever ended up in the book, I actually had about 10 times more content than that, right? You just have to understand it from sort of as many angles as possible before you can try to make it come out clearly for somebody else. So the process of researching the book, I just, I, I got deep in, you know, I really, really became very interested in these questions about, um, like, where does coffee come from and how does it get from there to here? And what are the politics of it? And, oh my gosh, it's so different from one country to another. And just kind of, you know, it it felt like a rabbit hole. It felt like this really exciting, fascinating, um, curious set of, it, it opened up this huge set of questions for me that went, you know, kind of far beyond coffee, like to what is global capitalism and how does it work? Uh, because coffee is a really interesting sort of cipher for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I knew that I wanted to keep learning about it and trying to answer some of these questions. But all of the work that I had been doing up until then, I was doing as sort of a second career. I had a full-time job at a university uh, working at a, as a, their, a communications director. And uh, then I got pregnant. 
and I realized with a little bit of horror, like, oh my gosh, I can't have two careers and a baby. <laughs> so that's too much. Um, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to give one of these things up and it's probably not going to be the baby. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm probably going to need to choose between this very safe uh, job that has you know great benefits and super flexibility. And I get to work with all these smart people at the university and coffee, which, um, you know, I was doing as a freelancer. So, um, that it, I was really sad because it felt like I was going to have to give up coffee basically, mm-hmm. um, was what it felt like the choice was. Um, and then I didn't because I'm so lucky. Um, I was actually approached by, um, Tim Schilling, who is the CEO at World Coffee Research and the founder, um, in part because I'd done some some freelance work for the Specialty Coffee Association um, and had, over the course of my freelancing, gotten a little bit more involved in the coffee scene, not just writing about it from the outside and translating it for my mom. Um, <laughs> I had given some talks and that sort of thing. And so um, I had, I guess I'd built a little bit of a reputation. And so um, I was approached by this relatively fledgling organization that um, didn't have a communications person and um, were looking for someone to help them tell the story of the work that they were doing and, and try to communicate the relevance of it to the industry. And um, it was just, it was just perfect, right? It was um, everything that I was sort of looking for. I, I didn't want to work for a coffee company, as much as I love coffee companies. I didn't want to be the marketing director for a coffee company. Um, I really wanted to keep working in a nonprofit type setting mm-hmm. and ideally with academics because I, they're quirky and weird and awesome and I love them. Um, and so I got to do all the things I wanted to do. Uh, so I just, yeah, I feel super lucky about it. And it, and it's been a tremendously interesting, um, challenging, but in the best way experience. So, um, yeah, so that's how I got from there to here. And and so what 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 is your daily role with World Cup Research? What is I mean, obviously you know communications, but like how how does your day pan out from like nine a.m. to five p.m. or maybe beyond? <laughs> oh God! Yeah, I'm guessing Twitter, Twitter, and uh, you yeah. know, and emails and all the rest of it never stop, and you get oh all the gosh, questions. Oh my email! It's crazy. Well, so we are a totally basically a totally distributed organ. We're a small organization, but everybody's everywhere. I'm in Portland and Tim's in France and we have our scientific directors in France and we have an office in El Salvador and people in Texas. And, um, so basically we just are buried in email all the time <laughs> because <laughs> that's the only way we communicate with time differences and stuff. Um, so I, yeah, I read a lot of email. I answer a lot of email, but I mean, the, the general gist of things is that I am through various means working on, um, communicating out mostly to the industry, although sometimes um, it goes beyond that to the kind of public at large, um, about coffee and about coffee agriculture in particular, coffee, the science of coffee agriculture. Um, And so there's, you know, there's Twitter and there's Facebook. Those are great communication channels and they really have democratized communication in a lot of ways. The the fact that, you know, I, I regularly have a coffee farmer in Guatemala, you know, asking me questions on Facebook that, uh, you know, 20 years ago, they never would have had access to, um, uh, ready access to the kind of expertise that, that we have inside this organization is, I think that's pretty incredible. Um, so it's a lot of that. And then also, um, you know, a, a really 
significant. And to me, the, in some ways, the most important part of my job is that I get to help prepare the, the results of our work and package it up for consumption. So um, that sounds like a silly silly way to describe it. But, you know, basically when we had the, the coffee sensory lexicon, I got to work with the designers who put that together and, and make sure that it, um, and write the introductory essays and make sure that it was something that people could understand what the purpose of it was and what the use of it was, and that it was easy to digest and, and use as a tool. Um, similarly, the coffee varieties catalog that we have, um, got to work with an incredible design agency that really thinks a lot about um, the user and kind of how things need to work and be interactive um, for different kinds of users, including, you know, English speakers, Spanish speakers, maybe people who are not super literate um, and might need to be able to easily read like iconography to understand, okay, this is, this variety is going to have the trait that I need it to. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get to, I get to think about all these sorts of things, you know, at the same time as, you know, yeah, posting updates and and photos and silly things on, on social media as well. So it's a, it's a pretty broad range. And, and then because we're, we're a small, you know, NGO, like if we had an office, I'd probably be changing the toilet paper rolls too, but I'm doing the like digital equivalent of that, you know, (laughs) as well. So yeah, it's a lot. It's great. I love it. That's the thing with a small team is you just end up doing so many of the other tasks because there isn't anybody else to do it. It's, Uh uh, you know, Job's got to be done. Job's got to be good. Yep. Got to do it. You were talking there about the uh, the Century Lexicon, and obviously that released. Uh, is it last? It is last year, isn't it? Yeah, it was oh, January of last year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how has the release kind of impacted on the ongoing work of like World Coffee Research, and like how, how has it progressed? Because I'm guessing with a piece of work like that, it doesn't just sit still; it continues to grow, and and particularly with you using the uh, the sensory uh, panel things, and you know, like yeah, what. What stage is all that at now? Yeah, so uh, so the lexicon was a tool that we needed to create because we needed to use it. <laughs> so mm-hmm. when we are, you know, really the main thrust of our work is what we would call genetic improvement, but really what that means is developing new varieties um, that have traits that we think are going to be important for the future. Um, and one of the traits that we think is absolutely essential for our new varieties that are released for farmers is quality. But what does that mean, right? Um, you can have two different coffees that score 84 points using the SEA cupping approach, and that tells you absolutely nothing about what they actually taste like. Um, and so what we needed was what we would call a descriptive or objective um, analysis approach that would help us be able to describe what a coffee actually tastes like and smells like and what its sensory attributes are um, that is discriminatory. So it, it, it helps you differentiate one between one and the other um, so that we could use that in our breeding program. So as we're developing these new varieties, you develop kind of like like in lots of different, so you develop a lot of different varieties and then you select the ones that do the best, right? So Mm -hmm. we might make 50 crosses, but only one or two of them might eventually be released for farmers. So the process of needle winnowing down, um, which are the best candidates, one of the things you're looking at there is, well, which have the highest quality potential. You need a, 
a descriptive sensory analysis tool to help you kind of describe the different options and then make your determination based on um, based on what you've determined is the right sort of set of quality attributes. So mm-hmm. we needed that tool. It didn't exist for coffee. Um, mm-hmm. I should, well, I should say there are some, um, you know, larger kind of like mass market coffee companies that use similar tools, smaller versions of them. They might only have 10 attributes in them, whereas ours had 110 and they do use them in product development. So the approach that we used was not unknown in mm-hmm. coffee and it's certainly not unknown in food and other beverages. This is a really common kind of tool for other foods and beverages. We just didn't have a big kind of comprehensive version of it for coffee. So we made it, we created it. Uh, we worked with an awesome team of sensory scientists at Kansas State University. They're, they're one of the best um, of these teams in the, in the country, in the world really. Um, and they, yeah, they did what they do uh, in their lab and they, they described all the flavors and aromas that they could find present in a very large sample set of coffees and then set about um, finding or determining references for them. And that's what, that is really what makes the sensory lexicon different from say cupping, Mm -hmm. a cupping approach. So you have this dictionary of flavors and aromas, you know, blackberry and lemon and, you know, roasted, all these different descriptors that you might use to describe a cup of coffee, but it doesn't just stop there. It, It actually gives you a reference for each of those flavors. And in some cases, multiple references so that you can say, oh, when I'm talking about blackberry, I can compare it against, you know, Smucker's Blackberry Jam. And I know from this tool, this sensory lexicon, that Smucker's Blackberry Jam has a blackberry uh, intensity of like four out of 15. So I can then taste this cup of coffee next to that reference and say, oh, yeah, it's a little bit more than that. This is this is going to be a five out of 15. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can actually get a sort of quantitative score for uh, the different sensory attributes. And that, and that is, um, in, in fact, how we're using it. So we have uh, variety trials around the world where we are um, looking at different varieties, maybe grown under similar conditions or grown under different conditions. And we are then taking those samples and running them through the a lexicon sensory analysis panel um, and kind of quantifying their flavors and aromas. And right now, this is all very early work, um, but ultimately the point is to develop a very large data set that helps us begin to do analysis and see, okay, which of these flavors and aromas are sort of intrinsic to the genetics, the variety, versus mm-hmm. um, seem to be heavily affected by the environment or you know the farming approach, the methodology. Yeah. Um, so... That work is, I mean, that it will take a while for us to have the kind of data set that we would need to be able to do those kinds of analyses. Um, but the work of analyzing varieties using this methodology has definitely begun. So um, we're very excited about that. And we have, there's a few, you know, specific trials that we have that will be regularly running varieties through this, um, through this methodology. So, yeah. So that's how we're using it, but it's also out there in the world for others to use <clears throat> in whatever ways um, that they see fit. And and we do hope, you know, over the coming years to see that other research labs, that other um, companies even are are putting into use uh, in their product development departments or in their 
you know, whatever their research happens to be, whether it's private or public. Yeah. So that, that's an interesting one, because last time we sort of had this chat, which was a year ago, right after it had been released, and you were like, oh, I've got answers to some of these questions. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we talked about, like, is what is this meant for specialty? And I think the answer there was like, no, it's, it's meant to, to be able to uh, help us, you know, determine these traits as we're running these trials and to give us, it's a tool for actual sort of sensory um, evaluation of these varieties and these coffees as we're, as we're doing things. But, you know, if it does get picked up by specialty, wouldn't that be a great thing? Wouldn't that be mm -hmm. a handy thing for us to have? And I was wondering, like, so over the past year, I've seen a bazillion selfies of people with the large scale poster <laughs> at SC. <laughs> which is amazing, and I'm really sad that I didn't get my own. Um, but have we? Have you seen anything else beyond that? I mean, are we we as specialty responding to the lexicon when you see us using it? Are we using it in the right way, or are we using it in weird ways? Is it mutated in a sense, or like what has your perception of that been? Oh, I think. I mean, I think all uses are right uses to some degree. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think part of the. It's, it's just a tool, right? And so how people use it to, like, is there a wrong way to use a hammer? I mean, maybe. <laughs> but if you can, like, use it, like, hit it sideways and still get a result, then I, that's okay. Yeah. <clears throat> um, so I think, I mean, you know, one of the key uses or applications of the lexicon was that it was we worked with SCA to develop a new flavor wheel out of it. So an SCA really led that work, um, drawing on what we had done with the lexicon. And I think that the flavor wheel itself, I think clearly has had a big impact in specialty. And, um, it has done, I think exactly what it was meant to do, which is to like very quickly and, and in a, in a really like simple, straightforward way conveys, oh my gosh, coffee is so interesting and mm. complex. It like coffee isn't just coffee. This is a conversation I have with my 97 year old grandfather all the time. Um, he's, you know, he's 97. So yeah. he sort of forgets conversations that we've had. So I've really literally had this conversation with him about 20 times now, but oh. you know, he'll, he'll ask me how I'm doing and how my work is going. And then he'll just kind of wander off and start marveling like, I just can't believe that you do this stuff. I mean, I just thought coffee was coffee. You know, mm -hmm. it's just coffee. I mean, I can't believe it's more than just coffee. <laughs> um, you know, and he's a man who's pretty much never paid more than a dollar for a cup of coffee. And at yeah. some point in his life would have been outraged that it cost a dollar. It was supposed to cost five cents, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that the flavor wheel is a really just a lovely, simple answer to that um, to that sentiment, like, oh, it's just coffee. No, it, it, yes, it is, but it, but it contains, um, tremendous nuance and complexity and beauty. And without understanding anything, you know, more detailed than that, I think you walk away with that message when you look at the flavor wheel. I think they did yeah. such a brilliant job with it. Um, and, and clearly, you know, it is that, that is having an impact in specialty. I mean, you see, yeah. um, I've seen a ton of um, companies that have that are drawing on the design, the color schemes, the mm -hmm. um, you know the the descriptors, which do come directly from the lexicon in their product marketing and packaging. And and I think that that is one thing that um, that I certainly am excited to see is that um, people are using this language that ostensibly is something that a consumer will understand. You know, like mm -hmm. like a coffee descriptor on a bag that's like. 
you know, toasted Rolos and, you know, some, <laughs> if, like, strange fruit that, you know, most people in the U.S. have never had a chance to try. Like, that's great, and it's poetic, and it does give you a certain message, but it's not necessarily telling you something that you can understand about flavor. Because yeah. I, I've never had a toasted Rolo. I've never put a Rolo on a barbecue and toasted it before. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea what that tastes like. Um, and so, but, you know, like... There are simpler ways of describing flavor that are now, you know, kind of backed up by this sensory descriptive analysis tool, tool that I would understand. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. And then there's also just been fun stuff, you know, like I've, I've participated in a couple of events where people have actually assembled all or a, or a big chunk of the references from the lexicon and just had a big tasting party, you know, like yeah. come here's some coffee and here's all these like, you know, jars full of green bean juice and <laughs> you know, other stuff. Like let's just get together and taste them all and talk about yeah. coffee. Um, and I think that's just fantastic. That's an excellent use. <laughs> so, <clears throat> I mean, I, I think the, the point you touched on there about, uh, you know, coffee's coffee, kind of thing like I'm gonna give my age away kind of by yes I remember people saying exactly the same about wine when yeah. we had a wine shop open in the, the small town that I grew up in and it was like well why do you need a wine shop wine's just wine you know yeah. beer beer's just beer and uh, like it, it's because they got their act together where they could actually start describing it and making you see those differences that it kind of um, it kind of grew yeah um, and that's hopefully what the lexicon starts to do um, when we talked last time, um, we talked a lot about the F1 hybrids and varietal trials, mm -hmm. obviously linked in with the sensory uh, lexicon. Um, I mean, how are those trials going? Like in, in general, are we are we seeing? Have we got results coming from them yet? And has there been anything that's really shocked or anything that we expected or things like that? Well, so so I'll yes. Um... <laughs> and and the yes, caveat all that, like research <laughs> takes time and especially with coffee where it's a slow it's a tree it takes a while to grow yeah. so you know doing evaluations um sometimes can be a slow process but there have been some very exciting things happening so the the first generation of f1 hybrid varieties in coffee was released in central america around 2010 um we did not create them because we didn't exist then um but the one of the breeders who was kind of most heavily involved in them is our breeder so um so we feel a certain kinship with them i guess um and to me one of the most exciting things that's happened is that those varieties some of those varieties are now in production they're producing you know quantities of coffee for some farmers in central america they're not super widely cultivated but they're they're out there producing cherry and um now two years in a row um some one of those varieties centro americano has scored over 90 points in couple of cup of excellence competitions uh wow. in both costa rica and nicaragua and that to me is just super fantastic because we've been kind of going around talking about, look, these varieties really do represent a shift for farmers and for the industry. It's a whole new type of variety that hasn't been available before. They have great agronomic potential for many farmers. Um, Centro Americano in the early trials when it was being selected was showing yield increases of 22 to 46% and in some cases more. It can be grown well under shade. It's resistant to coffee leaf rust. So it's it's got these great traits that like matter to farmers. And we also had the breeder saying, and the cup quality is really good, which is yeah. great. But we all know that like in specialty, like what a breeder, what is that? 
what do they know about quality, you know? Um, so to have that kind of external validation of these varieties can perform in the cup and they're doing really good things for farmers is to me, like just the most exciting news in coffee in the last year. Um, so, so I think that's super exciting. Um, and, and it, it's kind of validating for us because in our breeding program, we are going for this strategy of F1 hybrid varieties because we think it has this, the right combination of, um, results that we, that we need, uh, for the future. So Mm -hmm. it's, it's also validating from that perspective that like, all right, we're doing the right thing. Um, so in our own breeding, um, we now have the first, uh, big round of crosses that we made, uh, to, to try to create some the next kind of wave of F1 hybrid varieties was made in 2016. And those plants, those little baby plants are now in the field in uh, research plots in um, Costa Rica and um, El Salvador in three different locations. Uh, and so we are watching them. They're, they're still babies. They're like, um, let's see, I was just visiting our farm in El Salvador in June and they're about depending on the plant, you know, one to two feet high, one and a half to two feet high. So it's going to be time before they're producing cherry and we can do mm-hmm. the, the sensory lexicon evaluations on them. But the idea is that we will watch how they do both from a farming results perspective. You know, are they vigorous? Are they, um, you know, do they, are they tall or short? Like what, what is the combination of traits that they, that they're showing and the quality evaluations. And then ultimately the goal there would be to select um, probably two or three that are different, that have different sets of traits for different kinds of farmers um, and release those commercially for farmers. So that it's a process, um, but you don't sort of just do it once and then stop. So we we did the first round of crosses uh, and we're, we've got those plants in the field. We've also now done two more rounds of crosses. Um, and the latest was just done. We've got the seeds, but the seeds haven't been germinated yet. Um, so they're, they just look like little coffee, green coffee beans. And we've got to put them in some soil and, um, get them rooted and get the plants growing. And those are kind of interesting because they are what we call a three-way hybrid where the mother is an F1 hybrid Mm -hmm. and the father is a, is a cultivated variety like geisha or something Uh else. Um, and that we, I don't think has been done before where you're actually using an F1 hybrid to be the parent of a new F1 hybrid. So, We'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll see what comes of all this. But definitely um, a lot of progress. And, you know, it takes some time to kind of get a, a program like this set up and, and pumping material out. But mm-hmm. it feels like we're there. Um, we've, we've built the foundation and now the work can kind of progress. Um, so we're making our crosses where we've got stuff in the field in Central America. We're also sending these F1 hybrids to Rwanda to be tested for East Africa. Um and some of the materials that we're using to make the crosses, uh, which have not really been used in breeding before, these are um, varieties that mostly originated um, from Ethiopia and were collected during FAO and Orstom collecting missions in the 60s. Um, we, are, we kind of created a pool of, of those, about 100 of them that are highly genetically diverse from different from the kind of cultivated varieties like Bourbon and Typica. Mm-hmm. Um, that other breeding programs can use if they want to create their own F1 hybrids. So we've now got that available, and if countries want to make use of it, they can. So there's a, really there's been a ton of um, of activity and progress. 
I'm guessing with research, like my my experiences of it, that they, they, they're, they're, there's obviously a long time period that's got to be done here, but it tends to be fairly timelined. When can mm-hmm. we expect to start to see, like you know, what we call what we call evidence and actual like this is what we think. These are the conclusions we're starting to make, and then at what point do you think we'll be at where we have these are the conclusions we're making from from the studies that we've done. Yeah, well, with so just to take the breeding specifically as an example, so these F1 hybrid, the first round of F1 hybrids that are in the field now, we're taking observations. So we are looking at, you know, how vigorous they are. Um, And you you can already see it. Like I said, I was at the field um, at our research farm in El Salvador, like some of them are just look kind of wimpy and like, eh. (laughs) And other ones are like, oh, you know, like on steroids, like they are really um, tall and bushy and vigorous. And so it's, it's already pretty clear that there are going to be some winners and some losers, um, that, and we'll toss the losers. Um, that sounds really awful. (laughs) Like, like I'm like a grade school bully or something. No, um, you know, there's going to be some that are better and some that are not as good. So, so the observation piece is already happening, um, in terms of then selecting, you know, we will want to, clearly wait until they're producing cherry and we can see how how high production volumes are and that will be you don't want to just look at year one you want to look at year two and year three and then you want to whittle it down to your kind of top contenders and then you want to look at another generation or two you want to you want to evaluate more than just one set of plants and so you know realistically that the amount of time from, you know, those first crosses being made to having something that you would release commercially for farmers that you feel confident is like, this is going to be a good bet for farmers is probably about 10 years. Um, that is a lot less time than it used to be. So with F1 hybrids, because you, you go to the first generation and then you stop. You don't um, take the babies from the F1s, which are called the F2s, and then the babies from those, which are the F3s, and the babies from those, which are the F4s, um, to create a pure line variety. This all sounds like total jargon, but I promise there's an easy upshot. <laughs> when, you, when, you, when, you, when you go the traditional method of not F1 hybrids, it takes about 20 to 30 years to release a new variety because you right. have to test out multiple generations. With the F1, you stop after the first generation, um, which means you only have to wait for the coffee to grow three years, four years, five years, you know. So um, it, it means that you can you can select and release varieties in about 10 years instead of 20 or 30, um, right. which is tremendously important right now because the dynamics on the ground are changing very rapidly for farmers. And that's partly climate change, um, but it's also partly just the coffee agriculture the sort of whole sector is really it's it's very dynamic and it's very changed um i think we talked about this a little bit last time but you know the evidence of this for me is that is the last big round of breeding that was done in coffee in central america was the release of catamores and sarchamores in the 90s and those varieties took about 20 30 years to produce and release they started working on them in the 60s and the 70s they were worried about coffee leaf rusts coming to central america it did come, so they were they were right to worry about it. Um, they started creating these new varieties that would be resistant resistant to coffee leaf rust, um, catamores and sarchamores. They're two different classes of varieties, and um, they they got them where they wanted them. They released them in a big way for farmers in the '90s, right as the specialty coffee 
boom was starting to happen. And all of a sudden, people cared about quality, Mm -hmm. and they hadn't before. And so when these breeders were working and selecting these leaf rust-resistant varieties, they really didn't take quality into consideration in in any kind of way that would be recognizable to the specialty market now. Um, Because there was no market signal, right? Nobody was saying, like, the varieties have to taste good or taste or be differentiated or be interesting. Um, So they released them and then and then they had this huge backlash um because the varieties didn't taste good and all of a sudden the market was demanding that they did and so when you have that huge time lag 20 to 30 years breeders are not able to effectively respond to the market signal right Mm -hmm. um and ultimately that's what you want to do when all when you're breeding a coffee all you're doing is I mean, another kind of word that you could use is sort of design, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. looking for specific traits that meet the needs um, that your farmers have. And usually, typically, historically, that's been yield or disease resistance. But increasingly in coffee, it is also quality. Um, and so being able to shorten the amount of time it takes to create a new variety helps breeders do a better job of responding to farmers' needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and those needs are changing. No, that's, that's amazing. So just, just on the, um, there's a part that jumped into my head then and it's completely gone. Oh my God, I'm, do- I'm terrible at it. I maybe shouldn't do podcasts anymore. There was something really important in my head that you said in there and I can't remember what it was I wanted to ask. Oh, Jen, you take over. Oh dear. <laughs> well, Steve, if it comes back, you just, you hop right back in, okay? Um... Okay, I will. I will. If I wake up, I'll suddenly go, ah, it was this! Well, so the thing, everything about this is is so fascinating. And the thing is, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm really, really... I love plants. Um, I'm just going to throw mm-hmm. that in there. And, and I, I love plants. Yeah. Like, do you, yeah. Hannah, do you love plants? I do love plants. I have a huge... <laughs> we all and love And now plants. I have a three-year-old, which is maybe like the best asset a plant lover could have because mm-hmm. they see things that you don't see and they just walk around like at plant level you know all the time <laughs> being like mommy ooh, look at this one it's amazing we, we, we are making a terrible mean joke at dale um who, uh, who works for me who recently won the uk barista championships and in his presentation, he started ad-libbing because he forgot what he was meant to say and he just spat out that, I love plants, which... <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? Who doesn't Who love doesn't? plants? Um, but the, like, there's, there's so much going on. Uh, there's so much work you guys do. Every time I talk to you, I just sort of like always scroll through WCR's website and there is so much there. And that is why... Um, like I'm constantly paying you. I'm like, what, what can we talk about this? Or like, how can we, how can we get involved in this? And, and because I think we get so excited about the work that you do, we often get lots of questions from other people who similarly love plants and go like, what can we do? How can we get involved? And, um, so obviously one of the things is that we will be sort of recording a video together in San Francisco with all the attendees there uh, to sort of, to spread that message, which I'm super excited about and I can't wait to see and actually should have landed by the time this podcast goes out, I think. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, but that is that is in line with a, with another big sort of push, communication push you guys are doing at the moment because, like you said, this research, it takes a long time. And mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, co- coffee changes fast. Like, we love shiny objects. We love silly <laughs> we're numbers. We're all just fish, yeah. 
<laughs> like we do, we move, we, we are so easily distracted by shiny things and new burrs yeah. and do we freeze our, our coffee before we grind and all of that stuff. And this is, this is the really important work that's happening right now. And how, how are you focusing people's attention on this long term? Um, like what is, what is so important about this and like, what, what are we, what are you guys doing to make sure that, um, the work can continue? Yeah. I mean, it's a great question. I think, um, and it, it's like one of the core challenges of my work, right? Like how mm-hmm. do you keep people engaged, um, about a slow process <laughs> in a yeah. fast world, you know? Um, and I feel, I just, I feel really lucky because coffee people are curious people. They tend to be. Um, and I have been very pleasantly surprised at how, um, interested people are in the conversations that we're wanting to have about, you know, what the future of coffee is and and what it should be and what it can be. Mm -hmm. Um, and how, how we can be part of creating that. And I think, you know, ultimately that is the sort of message that, that we have for the coffee world is like, actually, we all are part of creating that future and we, um, we need to be part of creating it, um, mm-hmm. that, that there is a, a significant role for the industry in, in driving the kinds of work that's done that will ultimately have ramifications. You know, I, one of the things that I love about this job is that, you know, I have, I have a daughter now, like when the world that she lives in, when she grows up or that her children live when they grow up, the coffee part of that world will look and be different than the world today because of some of the work that we're doing. Um, some of those things, we, we hope all of them are going to be good. You know, there's, you don't know exactly what the future is going to be hold, but it's going to be different. And that to me is very exciting. Um, so, um, you know, one of the key mechanisms that we have for people to be engaged in the work is something that we call the checkoff program. Um, -hmm. and this is a, it's actually a really common way of funding agricultural research for other crops. Like, if you, or other industries, I guess, like the, you know, if you've ever seen like the got milk campaigns, like from when we were kids, I'm dating myself yeah. a little bit, but, um, I think they might still do them actually. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was, was paid for, too, so. <laughs> that was paid for through a checkoff program. So if you're a dairy farmer, mm-hmm. um, you pay, you know, some number of pennies or dollars or whatever it is per gallon of milk that you produce. And that goes toward, agricultural research, research on processing, and also marketing. Um, Coffee globally has never had a program like that before. There are individual countries that have a version of that, like um, Colombia, Sena Cafe, their big research organization, which is a fantastic research organization, um, is paid for by coffee producers in Colombia. But there are, Colombia, as you probably know, is very unique in the coffee world in terms mm-hmm. of the the level of organization that they have and the level of um, involvement of the government and the level of reach that they have with producers, not uncomplicated or unproblematic, but right. clearly much more organized than almost any other coffee producing country in the world. Yeah. Um, and so they have good research. That's awesome. That is so great for Colombia. That research is for Colombia because it's paid for by Colombian coffee producers, and that is as it should be. But if you are a coffee producer in Burundi or in Kenya or in, um, you know, name almost any other coffee country (laughs) that doesn't have a sector organized like that, um, you don't have the benefit of agricultural research for coffee. And one of the things that is very clear from looking at agriculture writ large is that if you don't have agricultural research, 
in the end, you don't have agriculture. Um, it is a necessary component of modern agriculture to be um, investigating and producing new technologies, new knowledge for farmers, and then, you know, and then getting it out to farmers as well. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's true of anything. Like you wouldn't, I, I use this analogy sometimes, like you, you know, you podcast producer, like don't record your podcasts on a gramophone. Like you record them right. on an iPhone, you know, um, you make use of the best new technologies and, and we all do why coffee farmers should not have the benefit of that kind of, you know, advancement and progress. Um, they should, they absolutely should. Um, yeah. and there is a role for the coffee industry, which captures the majority of the value in this system to, um, help produce some of that new knowledge and some of those new tools and technologies like new varieties and um, help farmers have access to them. Because like, frankly, the work just isn't getting done. And if it doesn't get done, uh, we are, we are going to, there are going to be consequences. Um, and mm -hmm. I think the coffee leaf rust epidemic in Central America was a really good example and kind of a wake up call for the industry that, oh, this is what happens when you're not ready, when yeah. you're not prepared as an agricultural sector. So, so yeah, so we have this thing called the checkoff program. Wow. That was a, that was a long, <laughs> that was a long introduction. <laughs> we have this thing called the checkoff program. And what it does is it allows coffee roasters of any size, um, to contribute like a penny per pound or five pennies per pound. It's up to you, um, on your green coffee purchases. Um, as long as you're buying through an importer that participates in the program, which is really most of them at this point. Um, mm -hmm. And some of those importers, awesomely, will match that contribution. So you put in a penny, they put in a penny, we get two pennies, uh, and we can do twice as much work. Yeah. Um, so it's this kind of cool system where like, it just runs in the background, you're making your purchases, it's happening, the importer collects um, those funds as part of the, you know, the bill that you're paying to them, they hold on to those funds, and then they they hand them over to us a couple times a year. Um, and that just allows us to keep doing our work, um, chugging right along in the background. Um, and it allows, you know, even very small micro roasters to participate in this much bigger um, project of, of coffee research for the benefit of coffee producers everywhere in the world. And I think, you know, that's one of the things that we hear sometimes from people is like, I, I want to do stuff and I don't know how, like I don't, yeah, I'm not yeah. big enough to have a sustainability manager or, you know, build a well or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. I, um, so it's great that I can be part of this. Um, and that's, and that's just it. It's, it's, we have teeny tiny micro roasters who roast like, you know, 10,000 pounds a year participating. And we also have very large roasters like, you know, Allegro that supplies all the coffee for Whole Foods markets participating in the program at the same time so it's, it scales and yeah. that's i think that's awesome so can i be a grump yeah be a grump i'm, I'm always a grump <laughs> so <laughs> how much money does world coffee research need to raise to be able to do all of the work that it needs you know, that it wants to do or is planning to do over the next three years say we would like to be an organization we would like to be a 10 million dollar organization um, to really execute the research agenda that we think that we think is necessary uh, to to sort of meet the challenges that we have right now, we're a three million dollar organization. Okay, so, so say we even go to the middle and we go to eight million in mm -hmm. three years' time, and with everybody who's currently signed up to the checkoff program, how much do you think that's going to bring in for World Coffee Research? 
through the checkoff program specifically. Yeah, just the checkoff program. Yeah, we also have folks that give money outside of yeah, that program. Of course, of course. <clears throat> I was not prepared for that question, so I'm not sure I have an answer for you. It's, I, I, um, I know because I talked to Greg. <laughs> I can <okay>. help. <laughs> you can answer that but question. It, um, it, yeah, Greg, Greg was saying it was about $150,000 yeah, a year. It will right bring in, which is fantastic, of course. Every bit goes towards it. Yep. But it just feels like such a such a small a small part of, mm. of, of where the research and you know you said Allegra signed up and I think that is absolutely amazing like that they are you know they're they're a really big size roaster that can, yep. you know are really getting through an awful lot of coffee. Um, is that just on the on the sales of the, through the importers or is that on direct sales as well? And and like, how do you police that? Do you police that? And no, and, we're and not the like coffee. That? We're not the coffee police. I mean, it's it's. But what happens is it's it's supposed to be automatic in the background, right? So every time Allegro yeah. makes a purchase from an importer, it just gets tagged on. Um, we do have systems where we're kind of making sure that there's not like a big dip for some reason, and that's happened in the past. Um, but it what, what I'm saying is, what about their direct purchases that they're buying, that, which won't come through an importer? Is Sorry, it just on the again. importer store floor? Say that again. I missed the question. So, um, so like the, the direct, like what about their direct purchases if they they're buying from a producer and importing themselves and mm-hmm. not through an importer? And I, I, mean, I don't want to use Allegra as the the the, the, yeah. the the idea for this. I kind of felt like I've gone down a horrible avenue. I don't want to be down. But you know, <laughs> well, uh, so one has option that people buys, have buys a copy direct, and what happens to that? I mean, where, where where does that come in? Yeah. So okay, two options there. So one is that we do have people that do self-reporting. So where they buy a lot of coffee direct, they don't use a lot of the importers that are participating. So they just send us a quarterly report of how many pounds they bought and they um, and they want to give, let's say, two pennies per pound and they send us their own report and send us a check and that's great. That's totally an option. The other option for folks that don't work with importers is that um, is that there's a lot of people that just give a direct donations. So they might use the kind of um, math that we use for the, for the checkoff program. Like, okay, I think I want to give about a penny a pound and I bought roughly buy this many pounds per year. And so at the end of the year, I'm just going to cut you a check for X number of dollars. And it doesn't go through the checkoff program, you know, functionality um, through that pipeline, but it's effectively the same thing. So when Greg says that we are, you know, raising like $150,000 a year through the checkoff program, that is specifically through the checkoff program. But we yeah. are getting you know, more than half of our funding right now. So over, you know, that'd be 1.5 million um, directly from the coffee industry. And then the rest comes from um, organizations like USAID, um, the Buffett Foundation, grant organizations, public, they're mostly public dollars. Um, and then there's a tremendous amount of um, of contribution that comes from research partners where they're not giving us dollars, but they're actually executing the research um, and, you know, paying their own staff to do that. Um, and that's probably another million dollars a year happens in that way. Um, yeah. So the total kind of amount, it's a little tricky to calculate, but the total value of the work that we're doing is probably about $4 million. And the total amount that industry's paying is $1.5 million, which means you're getting a pretty great, like tripling of your money. <laughs> Um, when yeah. you're, I, th- I think because I think the thing for me is like you know if if I can sell my coffee for a little bit more and make more money on it, then I would like that to go to the producer mm-hmm. first. And I, I understand the benefit of 
you know, we've got to do these things to stop leaf rust being an issue, to get varietals that are tasty and have high yields and all of these. But there's also the immediate part of the, you know, leaf rust is hitting lots of producers and they're having a tough time. And actually, wouldn't it be good if we could push it in that direction? And then I, I just, I, I feel that for me, the research, I, I, of course, this research has to be done. Um, and of course this is the you know it has to be paid for somehow but I just kind of I stress a little whether the the micro roasters are the people people's doors to be knocking on for it and when there's a you know the big commercial roaster we're going to benefit equally as much from this amazing research that is being done and, and also things like SCA who you know part of their role is to educate you know, to do research and, you know, to, to lobby governments and parliament, you know, parliaments to, to change laws and things. And research is definitely part of that. And I just, I, I'm not sure whether the, the micro roaster is the right door to knock on. I would, I guess I'd flip that around a little bit and say, um, so let's, if we do the math, you know, 1.5 million industry contribution and 150,000 of it is coming through the checkoff program. Um, which is a lot of micro roasters, but also some bigger roasters like Allegro. Um, there's right. What's the gap there? It's like one thousand, one million three hundred fifty thousand dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, that is coming from larger companies. So, so the I think the larger. Uh, but are they know, doing it through a checkoff program, or are they just making a donation and going? Most of them the are making there. a direct donation, but that's just yeah. how that's just what works for their business. You know, it's yeah. the checkoff program is just one mech. It's just you know, it's a tool, right? It's a, it's an option that people can use, um, but it's certainly not the requirement for um, how the work be funded. We really like it as a as a mechanism because it just kind of chugs along in the background. Um, and for us, we, what we want is to have sustainable funding, right? Because the research takes time. It's not like a one and done. We're not going to have um, all the metrics that we want to have or that we need to have tomorrow. Some of them are going to come in a year. Some of them are going to come in 10 years. Um, and so something that chugs along in the background sustainably, it, it, that is sustainable for us as an organization and sustainable for the research agenda. Yeah. Um, and when you have um, you know, companies when they're giving money out of like a sustainability budget or a CSR budget, those are usually up for reevaluation every year. Um, Mm. And so that is certainly how some of the organizations that support our work fund us. And that's totally fine. But, you know, we definitely like it when, um, when we know that, that people have, the other thing that's kind of cool sort of philosophically about the checkoff program is that it is tied to your green coffee purchases. So in a way that's a sort of signal that, that the, the folks that are participating in that way are seeing it as part of creating a sustainable, long-term sustainable supply of green coffee, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just a marketing expense, a, a, a charity spend. It's like, no, this is about having coffee. <laughs> this is about, you know, me being able to keep buying coffee in the future. Um, and so to me, that's one of the things that I like the most about it, that it sort of signals that. So I think... For me, I think I'd flip it and just say that um, why not micro roasters? We 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 clearly um, are funded by a really wide range of organizations, and and we want to be funded by a wide range of organizations. We don't only want to be an organization that's funded by um, 
very large companies or very small companies, because ultimately um, these kinds of organizations are buying coffee from different kinds of coffee farmers. <clears throat> and there's a tremendous diversity of coffee farmers in the world. And the cool thing about agricultural research is that it really does have the potential to reach every single coffee farmer. It, it won't, of course, in practice, but it really does have the potential to. Um, if you can create a better variety that's going to work for farmers in a different you know, agroecological zone where there's drought or that are especially concerned with quality or, um, or sometimes many of those things at once, you, you do actually have the potential to change the dynamic for them and, and make, help them be more profitable across, across this, you know, big diversity that exists in, in coffee. Um, so I think, I think the checkoff program for me has a, it has a very, it's a very clear, you know, this is how much you're giving per pound. And I, and I really do get that. I think yeah. that, that part makes all of the sense to me. I think the part that doesn't make the sense to me is that two cents per pound, say, that the micro roastery is giving um, to, to the checkoff program. And then, you know, a big donor, a big roaster comes along and donors. If they gave two cents per pound, that would be the proportion. He's actually the micro roaster is giving more of the proportion than the big, the big one that comes along and says, I'm going to, fund half of this research but actually I'm just going to give you this and that can be much that, that could be much less and I would imagine is much less than the two cents that the small roaster is giving towards it now I'm not saying yeah. that you, there's nothing there's nothing wrong with giving more yes we're, we're actually at a point of the industry where there's probably more more profit to be made in specialty coffee because you know you're dealing with a different product and different yeah. margins that would be my counter market. that would be my counter yeah. to that I guess is that you're and this is, I'm sure, not universally true, but in theory, you're capturing a little bit more value per pound um, yeah. than a mass market, you know. No, I, I, I get I get that for sure. But it's yeah. also, the, the, you know, the flip side of that is that the, uh, the they're making a lot more money from it. They're in a much better position to give that money per pound than, than maybe uh, somebody who's doing £10,000, the, the example you gave. You know, it could sure. be, it's very difficult for them. They're trying to grow a small business that's, you know, to turn it into a sustainable business. And... I just think well, the it'd be like the thing about I would love to see is that that's why it's voluntary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I know. I know. I get that. You have to do it. It's just there for you if you. No. If you no, want I get it. it. I, but I think for me, and you know, I've been quite open about this talking to lots of people about it. I absolutely love the work World Coffee Research is doing. Like, love, 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 and the people who are running it like have such a huge respect for, it. and I want to be part of it, but I kind of like I don't feel that. The, the program, the, like the, the, the checkoff program as it stands, mm -hmm. kind of fits what I'm doing because I buy from so many different sources. Yeah. And there's so many different ways. And um, it almost feels like there's a, yeah, you can give a donation, but we like the checkoff program. And that, that's, no, that, that's, that's the way it feels. So I'm left in a place where I was like, I don't know what to do. Well, Steve, do do for this? you, you can just cut us the check. Okay, so the other part is actually that I wanted to go on to with that is like with the point being part of the checkoff program or cutting the check. Like, I don't if I don't give you the check or I don't join the checkoff program, I can still go on your website and download all of that wonderful information and learn all of that wonderful stuff, yeah. and I get nothing extra for that. And you kind of think, I, I don't think this because I want to support it and I want to be part of it, but yeah. like you know it's like what is the benefits of being a, a donor what are the benefits of being part of the checkoff program that is a you know as a, as a business you have to make business decisions yeah. as well as decisions with your heart 
Yeah, so I, I would I would categorize the benefits into two very different buckets. So um, one benefit is you might actually have coffee to buy in 20 years, mm-hmm. right? So that's good. It's a benefit, right, if you <laughs> want to be a coffee company. It's a pretty big benefit. Um, but if everybody else is paying for it, that's okay. It's all going to be okay. I, I don't need to. But but not if but not if we don't you know if, if no, we or the other organizations doing the work don't have adequate funding to to actually do the work then no um, that that was we, me wearing my devil's advocate yeah sure do it then. that's I'm, your yeah, role I'm, I'm I get prodding. it <laughs> <laughs> the other the more direct benefits the you know um, you know what does this do for me personally so I mean one direct benefit is that it's a tax deductible donation. So it reduces your taxable income. So there's that. Um, I think if you're making money, you're you're making money, you're not spending money. You're making, I came back from Seattle two days ago and I sort of splurged at this store (laughs) that I like to go to. And I bought something that was 50% off. And I came home and told my husband that I had saved him, you know, $200. (laughs) Cause it was supposed to cost 400. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, you're making money. The, so, you know, clear, we have a lot of companies that we work with um, that that do capture it as a sustainability investment that they're making. And it's very important for those companies to be able to talk about the sustainability um, programs that they have and that they support. So there's a marketing value, I think, for some companies. Certainly not all the organizations that um, support us are are taking advantage of that really. Um, and we hope that more of them will, um, cause I think it's, it's reasonable too. Um, we depend with some of our programs. So we're, we're in the midst of launching a sort of very large new, um, program that it's, it's our most kind of ambitious, um, set of trials. It's a series of 1200 on farm trials around the world in a wide range of, you know, different agroecological zones, different sizes of farms, different types of farmers, um, to test, uh, both varieties and improved agronomic practices. Um, and so this will be producing probably the largest evidence base around some climate smart, um, coffee growing approaches, as well as, um, varieties on farms to look at which of these practices or which combination of things, um, creates the most profitability for the farmer. Um, so that particular program is one where folks that are participating in are also, um, getting access to some of the data from the sites that they are sponsoring. So we have mm. exporting companies and some importing companies that have agronomists on the ground who are helping execute the trials and um, they are in their supply chain. So in the farms where they work and, and the data is flowing to them as well. So <clears throat> I don't know if that's exactly what you're what you're looking for. I We as an organization, because we are a pre-competitive organization, like all the work that we do happens upstream and is for the benefit of all coffee producers and all industry we have a sort of philosophical position that the work that we do is open access. We are, mm-hmm. we are not going to put it behind a paywall and we are not going to restrict access to it from any farmer or any industry member um, because that is, that is the DNA of our organization, that we are pre-competitive. Um, and yeah, I mean, really the best answer I have to that, you know, well, if everybody else is paying for it, why should I is because you should. <laughs> because it's the right thing to do. Um, I'm only going to write the check 
if yeah. I get Tim Schilling's mobile number so I can ring him day or night because yeah. he is absolutely my <laughs> right. like he, he's one of my heroes. I like I, I'm a huge fan of uh, of <laughs> Tim and uh, the work that he's done just in Rwanda and and obviously now with this. So that that's the only way I cut the check. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Good. I'll process now, listen, that. Listen, I'm, I'm not meaning to be mean at all because, as I said, you know, my precursor is I love this program and I'm playing a little bit of devil's advocate. You know, I, what World Coffee I, Research is doing is phenomenal and um, I'm so impressed with all of the work um, that you've done so far and are doing and it's exactly what, as an industry, we should be doing. Um, yeah, I well, I thank you for that because I think I think the questions <laughs> you're asking are really good ones, and they're definitely questions we've been asked before. So, um, yeah. I think it helps it helps us it helps us as an organization, but I think it also helps the industry to actually have these conversations out in the open about you know what yeah. is the role of industry in funding research? Like, what is the responsibility? Is responsibility the right word even to choose for some of this? You know, I have my take on it. Other people will have theirs, but I think. The more that we can have these conversations in public, the like really the better off the industry as a whole will be. Um, so I mm-hmm. just put on that devil's advocate hat anytime you want. <laughs> okay. It does help us get better. <clears throat> no, no, I like, and, and it, it is. I mean, it, 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 it's so important that it gets paid for somehow. Um, we just have yeah. to find those ways. And maybe it is that just one size doesn't fit all. And, you know, there are, there are a num- like you're doing with the donors and all the others, the number of ways that it can, it can kind of fit in. So uh, I'm sure with all of those clever people around, somebody's going to come up with a solution to, uh, to keep everybody happy. Yeah. Well, the other small thing I'll say about all of this is that, like, the fact that the industry supports our work, the fact that we have both micro roasters and, you know, Craig Green Mountain supporting our work is the reason why we're also then able to go out and get, you know, funding from USAID and funding mm-hmm. from the Buffett Foundation and funding from if we were just a public organization that did not have that industry interest and industry backing, we would not be getting those additional public dollars. And that's really incredibly important, right? Because we're tripling your money and um, getting really essential additional income that supports the work um, in in ways that are that are sustainable. And so um, that it's that it's that funny, like, uh, you know, NPR drive thing where they're like, it doesn't matter how much you give us, just, (laughs) just be, you know, um, we just need to show that, um, that we have the support of this broad, diverse range of industry. Um, and so like, literally it does matter. Like, even if all you're able to do is as a, you know, a barista is say, you know, I, I can give you $5. Like that actually does matter to us. Um, and it makes a difference in our ability to, get the work funded in other ways. So, um, yeah. We- Just write the chair. I'm trying to think in Band-Aid what um, Bob, uh, <laughs> thing it was when he's hitting the table, he's like, just give us the money. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's all. I've just got a picture of Tim Schilling in my head now doing that banging the table. So, um, yeah, I really that's am showing my age now and I should ever. maybe, uh, yeah, we should maybe Steve. wrap this up because we yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then the funny thing about this, like even funnier, uh, if we want to get a little bit meta, is that the fact that our all of our content has been freely accessible from day one and has never been behind yeah. a paywall uh, is is yeah. down to Steve, I think. Um, and yeah. so it really is the case of throwing stones in glass houses. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, no, you see, I, th- I think there are many other ways of raising funds. But we'll talk about this, Hannah, in, uh, in San Fran. Honestly, we're going to sit down and I'm going to come up with all of these amazing ideas for I you. I love I'm it. Really I'm going to hire you as our new <laughs> fundraising manager. Because <laughs> I've, got, I've got a head full of stuff in, like how World Coffee Research can, can raise funds as well. But, like, yeah, you can use them as well as the Chekhov program. I love it. Is that okay? I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'm so excited to, to see you both in San Francisco. It's going to be a great conversation. Oh, yeah. We can't, we, Me too. Can't wait to have you there. Like, it is... I, I am really excited about the, about what's happening there. Um, and I don't want to end on a low note, um, but uh, I was just wondering... So aside from the fact that, you know, the research is slow because that is research and, you know, we need money to pay for research. Aside from that, are there, are there any other challenges you guys are facing? Because from our end, it seems like everything seems to be moving really smoothly like you know the the interest level and the work that you guys are doing is is on the up and mm-hmm. um and so many people like i think our last podcast with you was one of the most listened to podcasts we've ever had people are really interested mm-hmm. in the work you guys are doing it's it's really exciting to see is there anything that you you guys are worried about for the future you just you just want to make sure that we can get this happening and the money keeps coming in and we can keep doing the work that's there i mean of course there's yeah, there's things we're worried about. We're worried about climate yeah. change. <laughs> we're worried about... No, no, Donald uh, says it's you know, okay. Political it's not happening. stability. I mean, the problems that we have are the problems that coffee has, right? Yeah. You know, it's it's um, it's easier to work in some places than others. Um, how how do we how do we help um, some of these countries participate in the work that we're doing? Um, how there's you know there yeah there's there's an endless list of things that are challenging but but they're all the right kind of challenges um I think on the whole we do as an organization feel like we kind of have hit uh, our stride a little Mm -hmm. bit and we've um we're finishing up our first five years we have done almost everything that we set out to do and some few more things as well in our first five years and so now we're really looking ahead at okay, what are the next 10 years going to be? What's our, what's our strategy? What does our organization need to look like to support that strategy? Yeah. Um, what countries do we need to work in? All, all of the dynamics of coffee are changing pretty rapidly. You know, there's China's growing a lot of yeah. coffee now, um, but they're kind of um, a little bit of a less known entity. They don't have this history in coffee growing. So, okay, so how do you work with China? Um, how do you support them in getting access to great varieties mm-hmm. for their farmers, that sort of stuff. Like those are the kinds of questions that we're answering, um, or grappling mm-hmm. with. Um, so yeah, no shortage of, of challenges, but, but good challenges. Yeah. And it really just feels like the ground is under us. Um, and we are moving forward on that ground. Awesome. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> yeah, it's a good, t- it's, it's a, it, it's a fantastic time to be doing coffee research because, research has never been easier to do or cheaper to do, right? And technology and the changes in the abilities to do genetics research, all that kind of stuff. It's just, we can make up for a lot of lost time because it's, it is easier than ever to do advanced, uh, interesting research and answer hard questions. It's also easier to disseminate that research once it's done as well. And that's the exciting thing is the effect you can have now than you could have 50 years ago or 100 years ago. It just must be so exciting. It's so, like I said at the beginning, you know, just being able to get questions from coffee producers, like, where do I get this variety? Or I, here's a picture of this thing I'm seeing on my field, you know, what is it? Um, (laughs) That 
kind of, of access is um, it's unprecedented, right? It's, it's a cliche at this point, but it is, it's very exciting. Anna, you've been absolutely awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, I'm so yeah, happy to be here. Thoroughly Thank enjoyed you. it. I'm thoroughly looking forward to your talk on uh, on Saturday, uh, which is in the past because when this goes out, so um, <laughs> I will have enjoyed your talk. <laughs> but no, tamper tantrum is warping space time. I love oh, it. that's you what didn't we do. Know you were scientists. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We got a time machine and everything. Um, but no, thank you so much for all of your uh, all of your thoughts and and all of the. Work work that you're doing it uh, you know you and the organization I, I think we can all uh, be very happy about what's happening so um you know and, and the progress that's been made so thank you awesome thank you guys so yeah that's us we should wrap up um yeah are you gonna be on the next one jen i have no idea let's let's get past san francisco and see where we are see whether we're still okay. alive <laughs> but thank you all for listening at home and uh yeah thanks for all the fish Thanks for listening to this podcast. It's proudly brought to you by Nuova Simonelli.